0: Uh, so the story goes that uh, President Coolidge attended church one Sunday without his, wa- without his wife Grace, uh, and later when Mrs. Coolidge asked uh, if the sermon was any good, President Coolidge, who was known to not be a man of many words, said, yes. What was about, his wife queried, sin, the president said. What did the preacher say about it, Grace asked, and Coolidge responded, he was against it. Now, sometimes I wonder if uh, we as Christians uh, have have gone beyond the theology of the, that God is against sin. Like, that's all we got. Sin is bad, don't do it. And even though we say that, sometimes we say it with a snicker and, he, and say, yeah, 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 we're against sin unless you messed up. Ha ha. You know, everybody does it. But today we turn back to this first letter of John in the second chapter, and there's more to sin than God's against it. And so hear God's word here in 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This ends the reading of Holy Scripture, God's authoritative and enduring word. I testify to its validity. These words are true. Well, let's walk through this passage. Uh, Three headings. I believe we see God's desire expressed then we see God's provision offered, and then we'll see at the end God's pattern to follow. What is God's desire? And look at how he, he kind of says it in two different ways, in verse 1 and verse 3. What is God's desire? My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And then verse 3 says, we know that we have come to know him if we, can, if we keep his commands. So this is the Apostle John. He's aged at this point. I mean, they date this letter as late as the 80s or early 90s AD. So this is an aged man. He's walked with God for a very long time. He's writing affectionately. You even hear his tone where he says, My dear children, Right, this, is, this is a hospice bed gathering of grandfather John and his dear children in the faith. You know, this is the legacy. What does what John pass down? What needs to be heard? What is at the essence of, of what does it mean to walk with God? And he gives this grandfatherly word about God's heart. Brothers, sisters, don't sin. Keep God's commands. You have this turn away from evil, turn to, to love. Right? These are obviously two sides of the same coin. But we're hearing that the, the, the desire of God, the desire of the aged apostle for any listening children of God is live holy lives. Now this shouldn't surprise us, because if you remember... Back to chapter one verse five. Kind of after you get through the introduction, what does John say? Right? Let me just remind you what John said at Chapter one, verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. That's such a setup. Right? What is what is the fundamental truth that we need to hear? And John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This letter is ultimately about God, right? And this, this glorious, holy being. His fundamental character is pure, unadulterated light. This is why the angels sing, holy, holy, holy. This is the God put forward. And so we shouldn't be surprised by God's desire for his children. Holiness. There's a song I remember singing, was it the, in the 90s? Holiness, holiness, holiness. This is what I long for. Holiness, this is what I need. Some of you are familiar with a famous pastor named uh, Robert Murray McShane. And one of his lines that, speaks to my heart. Is he said, this is the fundamental need for my people. He was a pastor. This is what they need. What do they need? Any good sermons? Right? A charismatic personality? A really good shepherd? A wise Bible teacher? That's not what he said. He said, my people's greatest need, he said, is my personal holiness. I wonder, I mean, when you're praying for yourself, Which I think is appropriate. I actually met a man who thought he was really righteous because he prayed for everybody but himself. I don't think that's true. I think praying for yourself is a very important part of it. But I wonder do you put that at the top of your list? My personal holiness. That I would live an upright, honorable life. That I would not sin that I would keep God's commandments. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. My dear children, I write these things so that you would not sin. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. God cares about our holiness. Um, Before we kind of move on to how God provides, do do you think about this? How how does God work out holy character? Um, One of his ways is, and we just have to say this to be reminded that this is his love for us, is that God allows suffering, trials, and pain. Uh, If you need to be reminded where you find that in the scriptures, uh, one of the passages where it talks about those in Romans 5. Romans 5, 1 is where it celebrates uh God justifying us and giving us peace with God. But it goes on in verse 3 and it says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character. And character hope. Like a like a personal trainer who's trying to develop biceps, and in so doing has to break down the muscle to rebuild it. This is this is God, right? In fact, your chaotic life is God's precise plan for your holiness. He's an expert seamstress, and he knows just where to poke the needle. Your life might feel like an unpleasant amusement park ride, but God brings in the bumps, the drops, and the spins to keep us from trusting in ourselves and staying the same. There is a worship war going on in your heart every day. Right? Will you worship the Lord God? Will you honor him? Will you obey him? Will you walk with him? Or are you run, rebel, reject? It's interesting that verse chapter 1 verse 5 is God is light, right? In him no darkness at all. Do you know how this book ends? Look how this book ends. Chapter 5, verse 21. This is the last final word from Grandpa John, the apostle. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. There's this war in your hearts. John Calvin called the heart the, the idol factory. Our heart is constantly building other things to worship. Our heart is constantly finding ways to wander away from God and to set our affections on things far less glorious than the God of unadulterated light. What is God's desire? A life turned away from sin, a life turned toward loving obedience. Can you say that? That's my desire. That's my hope. That's my vision. That's the best life now. God doesn't just put forward this desire. What we read next to is he also provides. He he makes, or we hear this aged apostle, this is God's desire. But he's also gonna go on and say, and the Lord God has provided so that you can walk in newness of life. He says, that, do not sin, right? That's, that's, he's writing this. Right? Think about it, like, why did John write this? He wrote this so that we wouldn't sin. Right? He's, this is to shape our minds and our hearts and our lives. And then there's this hope. It says, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What has God provided? If you're taking notes, um, the overarching word, right, what does God provide? God has provided an intercessor so that we would not sin. But the intercession, notice, it's its two qualities. It speaks about a past atonement and a present advocate. This is what God has provided. Let's talk about the past atonement first, right? Uh, atonement is such a you know a rich theological term, um, and, and you know so, some people have noticed that uh, atonement. If you kind of what what's the purpose of it? It's to make us at one again with God. Atonement to, to, to bring oneness back again through God. But the the thing that separates humanity and God is guilt. which is like the least popular term maybe in the 21st century right guilt guilt exposes that we failed to live up to moral standards and what is the moral standard god is light and in him is no darkness at all so one thing that's so important to remember about sin is Sin is not some general abstract thing breaking some sort of moral line. Sin is fundamentally a personal thing. Sin is turning away from the God who is a person and rejecting him. I don't want him. I don't want to honor him. I don't want to please him. And that's why there is guilt. And it's, it's, a, it's not just general metaphorical guilt, it's personal guilt. Because we've sinned against a personal God. And therefore that guilt requires some measure of punishment. And it will always be perfect and just because God is always perfect and just in how he does things. But when you sin against an eternal being, that the punishment is going to be of an eternal quality. When you sin against a holy being, it'll be a, a holy punishment. And, you know, Scripture speaks about the holy punishment being God's wrath or, or, or hell. What is God's wrath? I love how John Stott has defined God's wrath when he wrote, it's God's settled, controlled, holy antagonism to all evil. It's just settled. He doesn't, God never flies off the handle. But he is consistently opposed to evil. He's opposed to it now in our lives. He will be opposed to it in our death. And we would be, we are in grave danger if we don't have an intercessor. We would be in grave danger if we don't have someone to take our guilt. And so John Stott goes <clears throat> on and explains how this happens. Listen to this. Christ's death is an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. Did you catch that? God's death, Christ's death is an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. Right? This is God works to make people right with him. It's his gift. It's because of his love. Christ dies. Um, if, if talking about wrath and judgment is hard, uh, think about it like uh, our lives are a report card. But we've, we have failed morally. So we all have a bunch of F's. You're a failure. Some of you guys, like, that's hard to hear. Like, I was a 4.0 student, right? I had a 3.7. Like, all F's. Flunked. Failed. And so one idea of like trying to understand atonement is you think about, oh, God kind of annulled the Fs and turned them into A's. But that's it's not it's not just that. Jesus took the full weight of the Fs. He flunked. He was kicked out of school. He was separated. He took, you know, he went to loser school or whatever. Like, he took the weight and the punishment of our F's. So then not only do we have a report card that now says we've been forgiven, the guilt is wiped away, we are also now restored and given the full rights of relationship that Jesus has purchased for us. That's what Jesus' past atonement has done. He's made us at one with God through his death, experiencing the wrath so that we can now walk with God. And one of the reasons why I think John brings this up, right? Why, how does the past atonement help me not sin today, right? How does that work? Well, one idea is this. Like, how could you meditate on Christ's intercession for sin and then quickly run back to it? Like, how can we realize the extent of God's love in sending his son to die in our place because of our sin and then go, Well, I'm going to go love sin now. Christ, or excuse me, John is trying to bring our eyes up to see the beauty and the gift of Jesus Christ and to melt our hearts. If you meditate on the goodness of grandma and then rob her purse, there is something wrong with you. John says, Remember that God has sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for your sin so that you will not sin. Now, if you do, you have this atoning sacrifice. But meditate. He has provided intercessor, past atonement, but then He also talks about this idea we have a present advocate. It says, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Right now, right now, in heaven, Jesus advocates for us. Uh, This word advocate, it has legal connotations in the sense that Jesus is our representative before God. But sometimes I think when you hear about advocate, it distorts our view of God. We start thinking that the Heavenly Father Father is some sort of like hell-bent, cruel judge, and he has to be placated by some kind and winsome Jesus. That's not what's going on here. Right? The, 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 it's the idea that God the Father, out of love for us, has appointed for us the only uh, representative that gets his full attention. He gives us his Son. And in the Son represented, in Jesus representing us before heaven, God is pleased to hear the cries of his Son, and then to bestow the gifts that Jesus has purchased on the cross for us, and then he, God bestows these gifts out to Jesus' brothers and sisters. That's why it talks about in Philippians chapter 4, where it talks about we have all of the riches of Christ Jesus. Jesus has purchased all of the riches, and he bestows them out to his brothers and sisters so that we will not sin, so that we will live in newness of life, so that we will say uh, no to sin and yes to righteousness, There's a pastor named David Jackman, and I think he captures the idea of one of the treasures that got, got Christ has purchased us, uh, and it's grace, right? Uh, one of the, and one, you can make an acrostic of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a, that's actually a pretty good one. God's riches at Christ's expense. But David Jackman goes on to write this, grace does not abolish God's law, it internalizes it by writing it on our hearts. As our representative in heaven, Jesus, our advocate and our representative, sends down grace. Grace forgives us of our sins for certain, but grace also begins to internalize God's law and put it on our heart that we love the law of the Lord. You see this actually happened in the Old Testament, saints. Where they would say, I love the law. I delight in the law. Anybody who's gone through their teenage years knows that it's a work of grace to delight in the law. You understand what I'm saying? Like when you're, when you're far from God, the law is just bad, it's like a fun killer. It makes you, it it steals your joy. But when you begin to get wrapped in the grace and the mercy and life with God, you love his holiness, you love his law, you love walking in obedience. There is no greater joy to, to walk in that obedience. God's desire for us is that we would not sin and that we would live lives of loving obedience. What has God provided so that that would be true in our lives? He's provided the past atonement of Jesus Christ. He's provided this present, ongoing advocacy of Jesus in heaven so that it flows down into our lives. Jesus is our intercessor. Um, just one just cross-reference passage that is so beautiful is in Hebrews chapter two. So let me just read this passage. Hebrews two, fourteen through eighteen. It's saying so much of the same stuff as 1 John 2, 1 through 6. But listen to this beautiful picture of how Jesus has uh, provided for us. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And he frees those who of all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God provides. We've talked about God's desire. We've talked about God's provision. I want to close with God's pattern. And we see this pattern laid out uh, back in 1 John, what's the pattern? What should our lives look like? Uh, Back in verse 3, it says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims in him, claims, excuse me. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So God's pattern. Right? There's a lot of words there, but there's so many, I would say you'd almost call them like synonyms. Right, says, keep his commands, obey his word, walk as Jesus did. Right, these are synonymous. That obeying God's commands is walking as Jesus walked. How did Jesus walk? Jesus walked according to God's commands. And then that's why John he, he uses some pretty hard language. He Calls every person a liar. If they say that they are in a relationship with Jesus, but ignore his commands. It would be like a U.S. ambassador speaking heinously about America while in Egypt. You don't do that. It's so hypocritical, it's beyond the pale. And that's what John is saying, this beloved apostle. Here's the pattern. As Jesus obeyed and loved the Father, because you have been touched by Jesus, you too now love and obey the Father. Um, I think one of the pictures to think about, how, how, do, how does that work? Like, what, how, how does that happen functionally? Uh, it, 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 uh, I got this from Bono, from you too. This is, this is a quote from Bono. He says, when you align yourself with God's purpose, as described in the scriptures, something special happens in your life. And I just love that term aligned. Bono, who professes to be a Christian, knows that the Christian life is to find alignment. Um, So you guys know that if your, your car's alignment is off, problems erupt. And the more your alignment is off, the more problems erupt. I even looked online, and it says that a decent alignment machine probably costs thirty to forty thousand dollars if you buy it new. And then you go to the car shop and you pay fifty bucks for this alignment machine to the, to inspect your vehicle. Then you pay another hundred dollars, right, to to get your car properly aligned. And you do that because you're trying to avoid the greater problems. You're trying to avoid the more expensive problems. John is just calling. The, the children of God, back to simple things. Simple is good. Brothers and sisters, the pattern for us is to live a life like Jesus. Here's the alignment. Read the Bible and obey the scriptures. I think people love to nuance the Bible. And the reason why they love to nuance the Bible is because they love their sin more than they love their Savior. But John comes back just to general principles. Align your life around Jesus' life. As you read the Bible and you see that your life is out of alignment when you're lying, when you're slanderous, when there's impatience, when there's anger brewing all the time, like you, you go back and you submit yourself and you ask for forgiveness of sins. You ask for your representative in heaven, Jesus Christ, to supply you with new strength to live in newness of life. And then you go out and you obey. One final story. Both to sober us, but then to give us hope. So back on May 24th, 1738, in England. May 24th, 1738 in England, uh, uh, there was a man who gathered with a small group, and they were reading aloud some of the works of Martin Luther. Uh, This man had recently been on a missions trip to America. Before leaving for America, this man had been involved in a Christian group of men that were known in Oxford as being deeply religious people. But something happened to this man on May 24, 1738 that changed his life and his history forever. He records his own experience in a journal. This is what he writes. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me From the law of sin and death. Now the 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 man who said this is a man named John Wesley. He was thirty five years old. He had been an ordained Anglican priest for twelve years. But in his own journal, it was then that he knew that God had pierced his heart. Did you catch that? He had been a missionary. You know where he went to save a bunch of people. America. We still need to be saved. He had been a missionary. He had been an ordained Anglican priest. And yet he knew that there was something wrong with his heart that was changed that day. That should sober us if we think that everything is all square in our own hearts. It should sober us. But it also should give us great hope that when God comes in, when God saves an individual through the mercy of Jesus Christ, he can radically transform their lives. For the next 50 years, John would live a life of holiness and love before God. He would travel over 250,000 miles by horse to preach the gospel. He would preach over 40,000 sermons. Though the selling of his books and sermons earned him what would be the equivalent today of about $50 million, when he died in 1791, the only money. Mentioned in his will was the miscellaneous coins to be found in his pockets and dresser drawers. Like he gave it all. Now God is John Wesley's final judge and I only hope to live half a life of such love and obedience. But let me close not pointing to Wesley but to the God who Wesley preached. His words again. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have provided Jesus as the great intercessor who made atonement of sins for the people, who still intercedes for his Uh, Jesus still intercedes for his brothers and sisters in heaven as our advocate and representative. And we would pray, God, that you would be pleased by uh, just the simple obedience of your children this week. And just pray for kind of wherever people are spiritually today, wherever they are mentally today, wherever they are emotionally today, that we would just once again trust Jesus as our intercessor. And then go out and live lives of loving obedience to please Him. And then it says that, and we, we're going to fulfill what your desire is in First John. That that's that's the perfection. That's that's what you're wanting. That is what your love is intending to do: is to make us holy. And so, Lord, have Your will and Your ways in us. Be pleased. Be pleased now as we sing back to You, uh, Your character and Your goodness uh, towards Your people. In Christ's name, Amen.